All right, Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the word that uh, you've already been sharing with Mark. I, sh I thank you for the life that he leads. I thank you for the example that he sets for me and my family, Lord. And I just uh, lift him up to you. And I ask you to speak through him very clearly and uh, very, very clearly for us, Lord, but very clearly for him as well so that we can hear what it is that you have on your heart for your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Did you hear the most high and holy reverend part? Did you hear that? All right. Uh, this morning, we're going to be camping out in the book of 1 Kings. So if you have a Bible or you have your phone, um, I'm not going to have overhead because this is more of a story and it's less about kind of this real structured teaching. It's more about a story that we're just going to take a look at. Um, I enjoy stories from the Old Testament. Just hearing what God is doing in the lives of, of the Old Testament people. And, and it's amazing how those things translate into our spirits if we let them. In terms of who God is and how God interacts with man. And I was just thinking this morning as we were taking communion. I'm like, wow, isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? We get to enter into glory, into presence through this. I mean, any other religion in the world, man, you're not taking communion. Because you just ain't quite good enough. You just don't quite measure up. And yet we were able to take communion this morning if we simply humbled our hearts before God and said, God, I'm here, I confess, I repent. And he invites us right into fellowship with him. It's just a wonderful thing. And that act of redemption, uh, we see a little bit this morning in this particular story related to the prophet Elijah. And uh, he's a familiar story, uh, but we're going to kind of go through it and then just look at various aspects of it. Before I get into the story itself, though, I want to just put things into the historical context just a little bit. This story takes place approximately about 100 years after King David. If you remember King David, God set him up as king to restore nation, the nation of Israel back to serving the Lord. And that was the role of the Israel Israeli kings was that they were the kings were to lead the people into righteousness. Well, then we find his very own son Solomon started making some really as wise as he was, as smart as he was towards the end of his life, he just kind of gave over to you might say the lust of his flesh and that brought in all sorts of idolatry into the kingdom it, it opened up the door and as a result of that god said your family's not going to your the kingdom the israeli kingdom kingship is not going to stay in your family anymore long term and so god divided the kingdom there was a division with israel remaining to the north judah to the south there was kind of this civil war you might say and, and this split within the kingdom and so now, a hundred years later, this story is taking place still in the northern part of Israel 
where King Ahab is now king. And 1 Kings chapter 16, kind of as a precursor to where the story's going today, says, Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the sight of the Lord than any of those kings before him. Now, when God says that about you, it's just, that's not good. I mean, when God, and in another place in this scripture, in this passage, it, it says, there was no other king that upset or made the Lord more angry than what King Ahab did. It's like, man, what the heck's going on here with Ahab? Well, I'll tell you what's going on. There's like about four main reasons why um, the Bible says this about him. First of all, Ahab married Jezebel. And we all know about Jezebel. I mean, I don't even think that name's very popular in our culture even today yet, right? With all of our idols. I haven't heard Jezebel being a very popular name. And so, so for about 3,000 years, even just the name of Jezebel um, brings with it all sorts of, of images and ideas. But Ahab married Jezebel. She was the daughter of Ethbel. Okay, get that? Jezebel, Ethbel, who was the king of Sidon, which was a Phoenician nation just north of Israel. In other words, they were boarding up against Israel just to the north, and they, became, they were married for the sake of forming this alliance, you know, kind of like a Trump family member marrying, in, marrying you know, Justin Trudeau's into Justin Trudeau's family up there in Canada, you know, to form this alliance. Wait a minute, forming an alliance with Trump? Maybe. Good luck with that, but anyhow. You got my point. So there's this marriage, kind of before convenience. I don't know if there is any love involved in it or not. And you can tell by the family names of Ethbaal and Jezebel that they were closely affiliated with the worship of the idol of Baal. Baal was considered to be the god of the sun, of the rain, of fertility, and agriculture. So in other words, Baal was about money. Baal was about success. Baal was about prosperity. And so the more you worship Baal, and the more you please Baal, and went about all these ways to please Baal in the sense of sexual idolatry, in the, in the sense of maybe even giving up your firstborn son to Baal, all of these things were done in the name of Baal to please Baal so you could be prosperous. So this idolatry, now idolatry had been in the land of Israel for a while, but when Jezebel moved down, she brought with her this whole entourage of idolatry worship, and she was determined to bring that into Israel so that Israel's God, her, Israel's past God would cease to exist and that Baal worship would dominate. So they then built a temple right there in, the, in Samaria to Baal, which would be synonymous to someone building kind of like a Hindu temple right here on this land beside us. Like, you know what? We're here. We're in town. You might say that 
Ahab and Jezebel took idolatry from maybe the side road right into Main Street, all right? Um, maybe idolatry was out in the backyard, but now it's in the kitchen. It's right there in the middle of your house. It was something that was brought into the forefront and to the front and center. Something that I think in some ways we can see in our culture even today as various idols are being introduced front and center and they themselves become the main focus. So not only did they bring the Baal worship front and center, but they also introduced a new idol named Asherah. And so there were these Asherah poles that they would put up in the high places. The high places, like so a tower would rise up so that when you were coming on into the city, you could look up and you could see the Asherah poles. Idolatry. So this all-pervasive Idolatry was coming into the land, and being the weasel that she was, Jezebel wormed her way into having unlimited control in the kingdom. Uh, Ahab just probably was thinking, happy wife, happy life, I don't care, woman, go do what you do. Just leave me alone while I do what I do as king. And then so she kind of took over the whole spiritual religious aspect, including killing uh, the Jewish, the, the Jewish prophets, the Christian uh, prophets. So a lot of these things going on in this culture, and I think good reason to understand why the Bible says that he did more evil in the sight of the Lord than any of those kings before him. Now, in this story, we're going to enter in stage right, okay? We have Elijah, the Tishbite, from Tishbe. Don't you just kind of like that? Elijah, the Tishbite, from Tishbe. Not real impressive. Um, if you would have been in the land at that time, you'd have been like, Elijah, who, from where? Because they don't know not much about Tishbe, but it was over there on the other side of the Jordan somewhere. I mean, it was kind of like an out-of-the-way place. Elijah wasn't brought up under royalty from any indication. He just seems to kind of pop up out of nowhere. And he enters into the national scene, so to speak, of Israel. And what's neat is, is that the name of Elijah means, my God is Yahweh. So even there we get this contrast. Jezebel, Elijah, my God is Yahweh. So immediately we have this sense in just in their names of confrontation. And um, Elijah steps up out of nowhere and see when, that's what prophets did in those days. He was a prophet of God. And when Kings were going down the wrong path. The prophet of God stood up and said, Dude, you're wrong. We need to change our wicked ways here. Prophets just lived for God. That's all they did. Would it be appropriate for me to say that, you know, like Rob Irwin's a little prophetic, right? I mean, he is a personality-wise, but that's what does Rob do? He goes and does stuff for God. That's his life. 
that he's committed over to the Lord. And so that's a little bit of the sense of what the role that Elijah was in. And he went up to the king, Ahab, and says in 1 Kings 17, 1, he says, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain for the next few years except at my word. <laughs> Whoo, superpower. Can you imagine getting a word from the Lord to where he says you're going to shut down what you're worshiping? You worship the God of agriculture, the God of rain. I'm here to shut you down. If you think about this, God is taking on a little bit of an in-your-face approach to this. God is making this a little bit personal as well. I mean, think about it. God could have just said, you know what, Elijah, go over there to Ahab and say, Shazam, earth, and the earth would have opened up and he would have been gone. Or Ahab, because you have turned from the Lord, leprosy. Ah, He could have done that. But no, God chose the very thing that they were worshiping to say, I'm going... I'm going to show you. I'm going to reveal myself in a language you understand. So we see God himself is setting up this encounter. This was a direct assault and provocation against Baal worship. I mean, think about it. No rain for the next three plus years is what he prophesied. And then just as quickly, he exits the stage. He came on. And then he exited. And why did he exit? Because he was going to be chased after. God had to hide him then for the next three years until things came to a head at another place. So I just want to, so we kind of fast forward at this time. So for over the next three years, God kept Elijah in low profile away from Ahab and Jezebel. And then just as suddenly, God, the word of the Lord came back to Elijah and God said, now is time. Now is the time for this confrontation. And we all know the story, don't we, about how God sent Elijah to Ahab and said, we're going to have a showdown on Mount Carmel. You all come out, bring all your prophets of Baal out. And I'm going to be there, and we're going to set up an altar here. We're going to put a couple bulls on it. And then you call on your God to bring down fire from heaven and offer up a sacrifice. And if your God does that, then we're all going to join in on your God because he's God. And then I'm going to call upon my God to call down fire from heaven to offer up a sacrifice. And if my God does that, then you all are going to serve my God. And we know how that story goes, right? Uh, 450 prophets of Baal, probably most of the town comes out to Mount Carmel. It's uh, maybe about 13, 14, 15 miles away from Jezreel, which was the, the county seat, so to speak, where Ahab and Jezebel were. Jezebel stayed behind for whatever reason. I don't know if she just wasn't giving credence to it or what, but Ahab, the 450 prophets, and others went out there to the, to the, to the mountain, to Mount Carmel, 
And then they had this showdown where Elijah said, you guys go first. And the prophets of Baal, they do all their stuff all day long. They're calling out their God, praying, crying, cutting on themselves. And Elijah just kind of even makes a little bit of fun of them. And nothing happens. And then later in the day, Elijah's at my turn. And Elijah rebuilds up the, the sacrifice because apparently it even got tore down as they were calling upon their God. And then he did something, took it a step further. He had water poured out on the altar um, in an age of famine. you imagine what that was like? More in your face, people. He had water put on to build a trench around it so when the water went down, it went down into the trench. And then we know that he just simply prayed. And I'm not going to get all the details, but not only did the God of Israel consume the water-soaked altar with fire, but then Elijah had, the fire came down, and, and it, the Bible says it came down with such force that it burned up the sacrifice, it burned up the entire altar, the wood, the stone, and the land around it, and then it says, oh, by the way, and it licked up the water in the trench around it. That's the God we serve. Amen. 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 That's, that's the God we serve, people. I think he just put that little, oh, and by the way, it licked up the water, too, just in case you have any questions, people. And so... There's chaos kind of breaks out. Oh, and people started worshiping God. And in that moment in time, Elijah had those 450 prophets of Baal destroyed, killed. And then he turned around and he prayed for it to rain. Since it's been three and a half years, he prayed, and we know how the cloud was often in the distance. He sent the servant out, it's come, it's come, and then the rains Okay. And on top of that, there's even more. It says with the rain coming and the storm coming, Elijah ran all the way back to Jezreel, some 13, 14 miles, and he outran the king Ahab who was with on a horse who had horses and a chariot. So he outran, he outpaced. King Ahab getting back to the capital city. Wow! Calling down fire from heaven. 450 prophets of Baal killed. Prayed for rain and the rains came. And then outrunning horses getting back to the capital city. Now I'm saying that's a day. Now that's a day. And so we open up then chapter 19 of 1 Kings. And it opens up with Elijah going into the capital city and with the mighty hand of God upon him, he stormed into the king's palace only to find out that Queen Jezebel, who had heard about the exploits of the God of, on Mount Carmel, she fell on her face in repentance before God and she called out for mercy and she put on sackcloth and ashes and then they had a revival broke out and people got saved and then they tore down the, uh, the temple to Baal and they tore down the Asherah poles and they lived happily ever after. No, why not? I mean, when the goods are going, keep it going, right? No. Kings chapter 19, 
First Kings chapter 19 opens. With King Ahab tattletaling to Jezebel about all that Elijah did. And rather than getting scared, she got mad. You believe that? She must have been a force of nature. Any women like that around? Oh, no, no. Sorry. Squirrel, squirrel, get back. Miller, you're up front. You're preaching. So she gets mad. And she sends a messenger to Elijah and says, and the messenger is basically, in my translations, Jezebel says, she's going to get you. She's going to mess you up. And by tomorrow this time, you're a dead man. Now, in context, you would have thought that Elijah would have said, get away from me, you messenger from Satan, because wait till the next showdown comes on. But is that anything close to how Elijah responded? No. The next sentence in 1 Kings chapter 19 is, Elijah became afraid and ran for his life. Are you kidding me, Elijah? Come on! 450 prophets of Baal right over there and they could have just killed you? And then a woman comes along and says, and you're like, me." Really? A woman? Sorry. I don't mean that sexist. I'm not sexist. I'm not. Truly, I'm not. Just, sorry. Just wanted to clarify that. Scared the elders are going to come up, drag me off the stage here for being politically incorrect. All right. So I want to just camp out here, though. I'm being a little silly in making my point, but I think the point is well made, right? Isn't it? Why in the world then Elijah finished the job? This was supposed to introduce and move into revival and renewal into the city. What happened? Why didn't he call out to God for his next step? Uh, we get our first clue about why. All the way towards the back of the Bible in the book of James. And so we'll be hearing about this in more detail in a few weeks. As you know, we're going through the book of James. Pastor Joey is taking us through the book of James. But we get our clue in James 5.17 where James writes about Elijah And he says about Elijah, he prayed earnestly it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. So here James is lifting up Elijah as an example of what God can do through a person. And he's saying, Stu Jenkins, have faith like Elijah. Pray effectively and fervently like Elijah. That's what he's saying. And he's holding Elijah up. Oh, but wait. James starts out verse 17 by saying, Elijah was just a man like us. (laughs) Whoo! I'm telling you people, shout a little bit. 
Elijah was just a man like Scott Rupert, right? He was just like Susie Mayo, Mark Miller, and do I need to go around the group here? No. We get the point. Humans just don't always get it right. Author, pastor, and evangelist Francis Chan states that of all of the verses in the Bible, this verse is his favorite verse. Why? Because he states it lets him know that even though he is human, God will work through him despite himself. God isn't looking for perfect people. He's looking for broken people. And even though we see imperfection in Elijah's life in this moment, we see shortly that Elijah stayed broken. We see shortly here that Elijah stays with his God. It's interesting. Francis Chan, I don't know if you know him or not, but a popular just popular evangelical Christian author um, that has a, a good history within the church of Jesus Christ. You know, for most of his years, he's in his 50s now, for most of his years, and, you know, he's had a, he had a big church, a big ministry out there in California, and then he just felt like God was saying leave. I mean, <laughs> who does that? I got me a great business leave and he started out then like more small group house churches approach to 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 church and francis chance you know um a godly man he seeks god with his whole heart i'm not saying he's perfect i'm just saying that he seeks god with his whole heart and for his entire um ministry he never really, you know, when it came to things of miracles and the power of God and this stuff that we read about in James 5.17, just wasn't that real to him until just, I don't know, here in the last few years, a year or two, he went on a missions trip over to Burma or Myanmar, whichever, I'm not sure, that he, it's a country just south of China. And there, these needy people situations came his way, and people with deep needs for healing for their children stuff. A lady came up to him just with, his, with her child, and it's like, you know, things, he wasn't, the child was sick, and, and he said he just prayed because of this verse. Because of this verse, if Elijah could pray, I can pray. And so he just prayed. And God touched that little boy and healed him. And it changed Francis Chan's whole approach to ministry and how God wants to work in our lives. Just because God hasn't done something the way you want him to do something in your life doesn't mean God can't and he can't and he won't. And we need to know for this generation and this, this time and this setting, for pastors young like Joey... We need to be behind him in this prayer and in this faith and this belief. Because Joey needs to have the prophet, that spirit of Elijah upon him if he's going to lead this church into the next generation. Amen? 
because idolatry in the land has come in to Main Street. Idolatry has come into, let me pull out my phone, idolatry's come into our back pockets. Idolatry has come in in so many forms into the Main Street, into our everyday lives. And we need the spirit of Elijah upon our pastors for today. The second point I want to make about Elijah turning tail and running is that he failed to realize at that moment, at that time, he failed to realize that God always gives us a choice. You see, before he ran, he had a choice to make. Does that make sense? And this is so often what happens to us. Something happens, either good or bad, and then we react or we respond to that A, and then we go to B. We respond and we react and we make decisions and we do things based on what happened. What God says, and you know what? What even secular psychology says, that isn't A and B. It's A and C, and in the middle here. Now, it might be happens so quick, we don't even know about it. But there's a B that occurs. Uh, bear with me. I'm going to do just a little bit of reading, quoting from Gary Smalley's book about change your heart, change your life, and I don't want it. It's, it's a little lengthy, I won't make it too complicated, but I want to make my point here. He says, if you want to be strictly accurate, you can never say, you have made me sad. Or, you really upset me and make me angry. Not one of these statements are ever true or statements like them. What happens to you or what, happen, or what someone does to you never makes you angry, sad, or afraid. There is a step between the event and the emotion that is the true cause of how you feel. To explain this phenomenon, let me turn to Dr. Al Albert Ellis, co-founder of Cognitive Therapy, who uses the ABC model to explain our experience, how our experiences, beliefs, and actions interact. A three-event sequence happens every time you feel an emotion, such as fear, worry, or sadness, or discouragement, follows in this manner. An event, A, an event happens to you, good or bad. B, what you think about the event that happened to you, all right? And see the feelings that follow what you think about the event. What you think about the event in B is what triggers the emotions, right? So our emotions over here are a response not to the event, but what we decide to think about the event. And it's in that moment that we have to decide, am I going to believe a lie? 
or am I going to believe the truth about what I'm going to do then over here in C? Sounds simple, doesn't it? A, B, C. We could teach this in kindergarten. But most of us in our humanity go like Elijah. This happens, and so I'm jumping over here. Ah! And I'm running, or I'm whatevering, right? Your brain, when the event happens to you, your brain perceives the experience through one or more of your five senses in a matter of milliseconds. So fast that you're not aware of the procedure, your brain processes the experiences using information stored in your subconscious mind, which as previously stated, I like to call your heart. So the event causes us to face our hearts. And if we know something about the Bible's teaching about our heart, the Bible says you better let God be in the center of your heart because when this event happens, if God isn't there, you're going to be doing all sorts of foolish stuff over here. But if this event happens and God is in, and you know, secular psychologists talk about the id and ego and superego, and they talk about your unconscious state of mind, and you get all these new age people talking about all this unconsciousness and getting in touch with it and blah, 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 blah. Because that's exactly what it is. And God's saying, that's your heart. That's where I belong. So that when event happens to you, it's filtered through me. So that when you are over here and see, and you begin making decisions and choices about the event over there, you're going to be doing them according to God. Elijah, Elijah failed to do that. We're not here. I mean, he goes... Elijah goes throughout history, people. Okay, so I, there's no way I can begin to dog Elijah this morning, but we're simply learning. We're learning from Elijah. And then Elijah continues to even make some more bad choices, doesn't he? Right? He isolates himself. If you go down in verses 3 and 4 of 1 Kings chapter 19, you know, so after running, after hearing the news, he ran about 100 miles, and he had a servant with him. All right? And then he dumps his servant. One of Satan's favorite tactics is, is that when, you know, we're over here and we're in our stuff, void of God being first, right, and not having implemented this step here and putting God first, you know, we, we just kind of want to, we're just going to do it ourselves, man. Because that's, that's just how we, you know, I can't trust people. I, I got to do it. And so Satan starts isolating us and pulling us away from appropriate accountability. You know, I just, I just get this visual of, you know, they're going along this hundred miles running away, you know, from Jezebel. And, the, and his servants probably start giving a little bit of stink eye from time to time. You know, can you imagine that? Like, hey, dude. Or maybe he starts kind of verbalizing, you know, <coughs> chicken, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if the servant had you know, the nerve to do that or not. 
But anyhow, Elijah dumps his servant. He isolates himself. And then, oh boy, get ready. He goes under a tree. He throws a big pity party. Oh God, that I would just die. Just take me now, Lord. Just come back, Jesus. Just open up the eastern sky and take me home now. I don't need any more of this if I could just die. And he engaged in and like... You know, I know Moses couldn't even do this, and neither can I. We tried, God, we tried, but even Moses died in the desert, you know, which were just a bunch of failures. <laughs> That's kind of what's going on here in this passage. He, he brings up, his, you know, his ancestors. I'm no better than my ancestors, you know. I couldn't quite measure up to Moses. I thought I would, but no. Oh. Verse 5 through 8a is just like a mommy or daddy knows there's nothing like some food and sleep to reorient a crabby three-year-old. <laughs> Sometimes God knows the best thing we simply need is some rest, some good food, right? So an angel of the Lord comes to him. I love this. I mean, I mean, of all things, I'm telling you, if I were God, I'd be like, dude, Elijah, come on, man. Man up face to face. We're going to have now the showdowns between you and me, Elijah. No. No. God sends an angel twice, wakes him up, feeds him a cake of bread that he had baked. I love it. <laughs> he actually cooked <laughs> right there while Elijah's sleeping under this tree. He cooks. This, this, I don't know if it's a. A Christophany or not? You know, was it Jesus or not? Or was it just, I don't know. We don't know, won't know until we get up there. Uh, some people think they know. But anyhow, squirrel. So he bakes hot coals, I mean over hot coals, gives them a drink of cold water <laughs> in the desert. <laughs> cold water in the desert. And he immediately falls, oh, and it's a cake of bread. It's not just, it's cake, it's sweet, it's good. And then Elijah falls asleep again. And then the angel comes to him a second time and gets him to eat and drink again. And then it's like he's starting to recover. He's, okay, I'm, I'm feeling better about things. Now, interestingly, he wasn't yet, though, still settled in his spirit about getting back on track. And God's grace was sufficient for him. God still gave him space. Because Elijah keeps moving, and apparently he ate so well that for the next 40 days and 40 nights, it says he traveled in the wilderness over to Mount Sinai. Now where he was to where he was going was really only a 10-day trip. So what was he doing there for 40 days and 40 nights? Going from point A to point B when he could have done it in 10. Oh, we know what that's about, don't we? Moses in the backside of the wilderness 40 years before he was really ready for the next stage of his life. Right? The children of Israel in the desert 40 years before they were really ready to go into the land and do the next thing. Jesus in the, in the wilderness 40 days before he started his ministry there's something about 
God chose that. I don't know how much mentally, emotionally, psychologically, physically that we have to kind of come, need some space and time to come to it, enter ourselves, to reorient ourselves. But anyhow, he goes to Mount Sinai where Moses had went into the cleft of the rock. And I don't know if that was what was on Elijah's mind or not, but it just so happens that Elijah went to a cave in Mount Sinai just like Moses went up into Mount Sinai into the cleft of the rock. And so there's something spiritually going on there in terms of that location. And then in verse 9, we see where God then starts really kind of pointing down, narrowing down. And again, okay, Elijah, man up. No. What are you doing here, Elijah? <laughs> wow, such a wise question. All the times that I've withdrawn or wanted to quit or been discouraged or downtrodden or fearful or in pain by situations of life and just like a little lamb that has wandered from the fold and finding myself in the shadows with the, out on the distance in the shadows of night quickly approaching only to look up at the great shepherd off in the distance looking up at me and saying, hey Mark, what are you doing there? Where are you at? Where are your emotions? Where are your thoughts? What are you doing there? All we like sheep have gone astray. He does this twice. He does this twice. And then it was at that point God does something wonderful. He shows up, not like he did to Moses, in the fire of God that shook the mountain and caused it to tremble. Well, God showed up, but that's not where God met Elijah, was it? It wasn't in, in the wind, okay? It wasn't in the fire. It wasn't in the earthquake. But he came to him in a gentle whisper. He just shows up in a gentle whisper. I just want to think about that a little bit. God chooses to show up in a whisper. Now, whisper. What's with a whisper? If I were up here whispering, you guys probably wouldn't know what I'm saying, would you? What do you got to do to hear me? We have hope come on up here. Start with, no, no, just kidding. Sorry, hope. I whisper, right? She's got to draw near to me. What does that connotate? Dave's sitting there. <laughs> He's going, dude, what are you doing, man? Just talk to her. You don't need to have her go that close to you. If I started coming up, I'm going to pick on Bob and Teresa. If after church I start going up to Teresa, hey, Teresa. And I just kind of keep doing that. What do you think Bob's going to think about me after a while? Dude, man, she's not your wife. 
So this whisper connotates this closeness, this intimacy, this drawing together, being together on the same page. It's a special message between two friends. There's a sense of, yeah, that friendship, that closeness, that comfort, that we're on the same page. Discouraged people, fearful people, depressed people, tired people need to know that God is here to whisper words into our ears. And we can also whisper back, can't we? We can talk back to God at those times. And you see, when God whispered into Elijah's ears, it wasn't this just sweet nothings, right? It wasn't just sweet nothings. He told them, okay, now you're ready. We're ready for this next phase of your life. And he re in, through the whisper of God in Elijah's ear, God re-engages Elijah to go do the next obedient thing. And the rest of the story about Elijah is really cool too. I mean, Elijah just has one powerful story after another. But this morning, I'm just sharing this particular story because it's important for us to hear God's whisper right here between what's happened and where we're going to go and how we're going to respond. God wants to meet us right here at point B and whisper into our ears and say something to Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for Elijah. He was just a man. He's just a person like us. Didn't quite get it right. Got out of your will. But you kept him in touch. You gave him his space. And then you drew near and you whispered. Lord, right now, for each one of us, we got stuff going on. There's, there's just stuff out there. All different shapes, sizes, forms. And there's our responses then, but... I pray, God, right now that you would just whisper what we need to hear. As we draw near to you and as you draw near to us, let us know that if we've repented, you've forgiven us. Maybe that's what some of us need to hear this morning, that you have forgiven us, that there is no condemnation for those who just quite can't get it right with some of your sins, some of your attitudes, and you're a day late and a dollar short, you're not quite good enough, you're inadequate, 
And right now you need to hear that Jesus is right by your side. That the shepherd is here to take you back to the fold. And that he's just saying, I've already forgiven you. And I bless you. You are my child. I love you with an unending love. And I know things are scary. And I know things are discouraging. And I know you're tired. And I know you have all this stuff. But I'm here to say, I'm just here to take all of that and let you know that as you follow me, I will take good care of you. Even though you may go through some tests and trials you don't like, it'll be okay. It'll be all right. So, Father, I just pray that that truth would just sink deep into our souls this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed. Go in peace. Have a blessed day in the Lord.